Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. And welcome to The Chat Returns, a mini-series of conversations about our relationships with the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and we're letting the dark harvest begin. (laughs) (laughs) So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Yes, welcome back, listeners. So today we've assembled the dysfunctional family of Ghibliotech all together for one interview, very fittingly for this week's guest, right, Jake? Yeah, I think this is maybe one of the first or if only times that we've ever done one of our interviews with all of us together, just because we thought, you know, the conversation levels would just get too hot uh, if we were all there. But uh, we made the uh, special dispensation for this one because uh, I think we were just all very excited about uh, the person that agreed to come on the podcast and we all uh, we all love his most recent film and just all wanted to talk to him about it. It's very exciting, isn't it? It's incredibly exciting. So our guest today is Mike Rianda, director of Mitchell's Versus the Machines, which came out on Netflix earlier in the year. We said on the Luca episode with Enrico Casarossa a couple of weeks ago that it was such a thrill to talk to one of the filmmakers behind one of the great animated films of the year. And now we're speaking to the other one, <laughs> <laughs> the two directors behind the two best animated features to come out this year. So we're we're all fans of Mitchell's Wist of the Machines, right, Steph? Absolutely, yeah. It's been one of my highlights of the year so far, I think. It's just so much fun. So this was a really fun chat to have. And this interview with Mike is one of many exciting things that's going on in our Ghibliotech world at the moment. Uh, we're getting closer and closer to the release of the Ghibliotech book, uh, which Michael and I have written and is out in September. Uh, and that is kind of a nice reflection of our podcast. It's a journey through all of the films of Studio Ghibli from Nausicaa all the way to Earwig and the Witch. Michael's tackling that context and history, the best part of the episodes. Uh, and then I'm tackling the critical review, which uh, I know normally in the show, it was my first time reactions, but I've spent uh, the last 18 months or so rewatching all of these films and uh, being able to explore them across many, many words. And uh, that's going to be out very, very soon. Very exciting. And uh, it's not the only thing we're making at the moment. Yeah, in the meantime, if you can't get enough of today's chaotic Big Family episode, uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and get some uh, bonus episodes where the three of us talk about things that we've been watching, reading, listening to. So we've already talked about manga and books. We've already talked about video games, TV that we're watching, 
Uh, this week, uh, we're talking about kind of music and vinyl. So all that good stuff, if you want to hear more. And so without further ado, it's time for our chat with Mike Rianda. Such a treat to talk once again with a filmmaker whose nerdiness about Studio Ghibli outstrips our own. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Mike Rianda, thank you so much for talking with us. It's such a pleasure. So for these interviews, we like to start off with the same question for all our guests, which is, what was your first experience of the works of Studio Ghibli? How did they ping on your radar first? I sort of like, um, I started out loving animation through like TV. So it was like The Simpsons and Ren and Stimpy and stuff. And I remember somehow I got my like grubby little mitts on a clamshell um vhs of my neighbor totoro and i was like i didn't like japanese animation i was like i don't i don't get it um you know and i remember watching my neighbor totoro and i watched it once i was like that was really good and then i remember watching it immediately again and like in the sequence in the beginning of the movie where they're going into town um and it's like nothing has happened yet i just started crying because it was so beautiful (laughs) and it was like a vhs and i never thought that people actually cried when they saw beautiful things i was like that's a lie in books and movies and stuff um but i've cried from something being beautiful two times in my life one was in the louvre and i saw a a a portrait by like anglis or something um and it was very uh incredibly beautiful and the other time i cried was in the beginning of my neighbor totoro um and I also, and to this day, I just watched rewatch Whisper of the Heart. I'm just like welling up the entire movie because <laughs> I love it so much. Um, so, um, so I that was that was actually my first introduction to Miyazaki and Ghibli and and all all of that. But I sort of spaced it out, and I didn't end up watching the rest of them until I was like in my twenties, and I was baffled to find out. They are all club bangers. Like, there's, like, 
I don't know if like I was like, oh, Porco Rosso. I'm sure this one sucks. Incredible. A classic. <laughs> um, you know, it's like Castle in the Sky. That sounds stupid. It's amazing top to bottom. Like um, and I, I and and also the Takahata movies, which I'm like, you know, look. The one with the the giant, you know, raccoons with their huge ball sacks is not maybe my favorite, but Gra- Grave of the Fireflies, one of my favorite animated movies of all time. Maybe the my favorite Ghibli movie. I love Only Yesterday. I love Whisper of the Heart. I love My Neighbor the Yamadas. So I, I, I've recently went on recently in the like the last 10, 15 years. But but once I sort of realized that they were all great, I started slowing down. And I still haven't seen like Ponyo and Howl's Moving Castle because I'm I'm like I want to like treasure it. <laughs> you know, Like there's something like with my favorite directors, like I love Martin Scorsese. And there's a couple of his movies I haven't seen because I'm like, if I just mainline them, there's nothing to discover. And also, I just saw the kingdom of dreams and madness. And I was like, that's how I want to live my life. Um, shockingly, <laughs> um, even though I've. Um, you know, it seems like um, there's some uh, it's a it's a little bit of a toxic work culture over there. Studio. <laughs> but um, but I do think, you know, it it, it um, pressure makes diamonds, man. It's 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 sort of incredible. So. So, yeah, that's my very long answer um, in terms of um, when I first started getting into uh, Studio Ghibli. No, that's that's incredible. And it's something that we come back to time and again when someone says, you know, oh, Spirited Away, massive, great movie. You know, why did you go make Ghibli Attack or why do you talk about these films? It's because they're this studio that have 10, 12 films that are all five stars. Um, you know, the, the, the rabbit hole goes so deep. And even then, when you're getting deeper down the table, the, you know, there's still, there's still something in each of them, whether they are magical testicles or not. You know, there's, there's always something <laughs> about the films. Now, Pompoko is one that you know, we've watched and rewatched. We, we did a screening of that at the British Museum with some really serious like art historians talking about that. And it's like there's so much that's rich within these films, you know. Yes. And even though that movie is sort of like, you know, to my eyes, I'm like, what's going on? There's a lot of... <laughs> Um, but uh, but it's still like a very watchable movie. And and in every single movie, I mean, I think people say it and it's sort of like I think you kind of shortchange it by saying it's like about the beauty of life or, you know, the simplicity of the everyday or something like that. But it's like I think it's like deeper than that, at least to me when I see it, because it's like every like people like I uh, as an animator talk a lot about like observation and observation is really important but it's like the way that they're like looking at every single looking at and interpreting nature and the world and a building and the way you turn a page the wind blows through a person's hair in the morning like the way that these things are observed is with such like love and care that it gives you this incredible gift that is like it allows you to see the world for the first time through one of the most incredible artists in the world's eyes and it's just it's a magical feeling that I've never seen anywhere else that's the type of stuff that makes me cry when I'm just like oh my god (laughs) and their like dedication to craft is something that I've just you just never see in the world um and and like how 
how dedicated they are to all this stuff. Anyway, whatever. Um, but it's 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 a gift. These movies are a gift to humanity. Um, and and I uh, I'm just like I'm filled with such joy when I watch them. Well, Mike, you mentioned three films as like very top tier for you of Grave of the Fireflies, My Neighbor Totoro, and Whisper of the Heart all being up at the top of the tree. And what's fascinating about that is like those are three different directors as well. Uh, so what what are you getting from each of those directors? Like, how do they inspire you? What are you seeing in those films that is different? I mean, the, there's a Takahata quote that I actually had on the wall, um, like a real cartoon doofus. Um, I was like, ah. but um, but it was true. I mean, I really tried to sort of like I put it in all my like talks to any any new artist. And I'm sure if <laughs> if Miyazaki's or, you know, any of the Ghibli artists saw our movie, um, they would be like this is an insult to life itself or whatever. <laughs> they would burn the celluloid. Um, but, you know, we tried. Hayao, we tried, my man. Um, but um, but it's like um, the quote is, um, and this is one of the things I love about those movies, but um, um, uh, we share in our conviction in the need to create a world of reality. I'm just going to read it. This is natural for works with uh, few fantastical features, but absolutely necessary for people who believe in fantastical stories as well. The big leap into what cannot occur in reality succeeds only when made from the firm springboard of reality. And that like that is why it's magical in My Neighbor Totoro when you see a owl monster because you spend 18 minutes just having a couple girls see a house for the first time and get excited about moving to the country. And it's like the most calm, naturalistic storytelling you'll ever see. And then when the owl monster comes, you are like, it's real. I'm sorry. I'm screaming. (laughs) (laughs) But as a kid, you're like, you're, you're like blown against the back of the wall. You're like, this thing is moving. It's breath is like knocking this girl back. Cause it's so huge. Um, you know, all, all the, the, the detail and how well observed and, and sort of thought out the world is because like Whisper of the Heart, for example, barely anything magical happens. There's like, you know, four minutes, if that, maybe two minutes of like kind of a whimsical thing. And then it gets back to reality. But it's still so incredible because the level of observation is so high. And that's one thing I love about that movie in particular is they let it be dirty I, I love Miyazaki, but I think like Miyazaki occasionally, I think falls in love with beauty as a concept, and I love and whisper the heart that they let things be kind of grimy. Um, you know, there's like you can see the you know it's and plus it takes place in a city, so you're like you see like you know old kind of scum coming off a window or something, or you see like um, you know cracks in the sidewalk, and that's just as beautiful as the beautiful tree in, you know, Mononoke or something. Um, and, and you know, I love them all for different reasons. Totoro is like, should not work as a movie. Nothing happens in that movie. If if I pitched that to a studio, they would shoot me. They'd be like, what? okay, so they a girl meets an owl monster and her mom's sick. You're fired. Um, but, um, but it's so compelling. I can't explain it. No... None of these like movie scientists who talk about skull, you know, structure can explain it. It's just in the craft. In my neighbor Totoro, one thing that's interesting is I saw the animatic for it, and and it shouldn't even in animatic form. It didn't. I was like, huh, this is so interesting. It's so much less compelling when it's not finished. You know, like 
I think in in a lot of you know American animation, if the animatic works, the movie will work. And and in in that, it's like so much of what's compelling about it is the detail and the fine, you know, the fact that you could see the shade coming off the you know the edge of a uh, leaf, you know, like and and in that detail, like that's what pulls you in and and, and sort of keeps you excited and sort of makes you fall in love with the film. And then Grave of the Fireflies is just like the best movie I've ever seen about war. It's sort of in like no other movie sort of brings out the horrors of war in a way that, that is so visceral and shocking and that I'll never forget. And, um, and then whisper of the heart is just like all animators. I think love that movie. One, it's like using animation to tell a grounded normal story, which is something we all claim we want and none of us do, including me. But then it's just so it's like about the joys of hard work. And also there are movies that are like without conflict and villains, but they still work, which is incredibly difficult. You know, if normally if you see it, like if you see a student film and there's no conflict, you're like, well, there's no conflict. That's your problem. But these movies almost have no conflict except like inner conflict. This girl is just worried that she's not good enough. Um, and that's the whole conflict. And like Kiki's delivery service is just like she doubts herself for 20 minutes and then realizes she's, she can do it. And and because it's done so sensitively, it works. So anyway, those are those are my those are my three favorites. That's an incredible tour through through those films. <laughs> um, I'm really intrigued by that Takata quote and how you say that you show that to all the you know, artists and animators you work with. Um, was that in the in the production of Mitchell's versus the Machines? Is there something that you could point to in that film as much as you think that Ghibli would want to burn the negative um, <laughs> that it, that springs from that quote? Um, yeah, no, totally. I, I think if, if there's anything that they would like, it's like the kitchen in the movie or the living room, um, because it was really important to me. And that's one thing I love about Whisper of the Heart that the, you know, sometimes I see animated movies and I'm like a animation jerk or Scrooge. So whenever I watch an animated movie, I'm like, ah, what is this? I'm outraged, you know, whatever. But if something's really great, I'm like, oh yeah, all right. But one thing that drives me nuts is that like a lot of houses in animated movies like look like they're model homes or something it's like everything is in place and it's like if you look at my room it's a nightmare you know like it's not that dirty but there's just bullshit everywhere um uh <laughs> and and i think and we, we tried to make the home in the movie feel like a real home we tried to make the environments feel real and observed and like we tried to make you know the you know highway signs look exactly like those highway signs and we wanted the beginning of the movie to almost feel like if there were no robots, you were like, oh, this is just a movie about a family. And and the detail of it ideally would would help tell you that this is a real world about real people and, and that the, the house that they were living in would remind you of like, oh, this is like my cousin's house. Or I remember going to a house like this when I was a kid. So then you would be because so much of, you know, animation is like you're trying to eliminate the distance between the viewer and the author, you know, and that's one thing that I, and that's one thing that Ghibli does amazingly is they like shatter the distance and you're there. And, and it's like, that was a tool that we were trying to do to really, um, you know, make that distance shorter. And I, I remember I stole this, um, I stole this line from my friend. He, I was like, Oh, I want to make like a dirtbag Miyazaki movie. Like, like, uh, you know, sort of like garbage. Like we had one of our artists do like Miyazaki type, um, 
uh, shots, but with like a Wendy's wrapper and a gutter um, and that sort of thing. And we got really excited about it. But I think in our Western haste um, to sort of manically entertain the audience, um, sort of some of that stuff fell by the wayside, which I'm actually sad about. If there's things about the movie that I th- wish we did better at some of that stuff, um, it's it's that the world could feel more observed. But because it was a movie with fantastical elements like robots and stuff, um, we were really trying to do that same thing where the robots, if you do it right, the robots will feel like, holy crap, there's robots in this movie? And it'll, it'll make you feel like you're seeing robots for the first time. Just like when you're a kid, it's it's like seeing a owl monster for the first time. I mean, one thing that I really loved was that kind of that lived in world. And every time kind of a new environment popped up, I wanted to like just pause and look at all of the posters, the books, the DVDs, like everything. Yeah, just like like there's so much detail and stuff. I was kind of wondering, actually, with all of those, especially in Katie's room, she has like a Boris Karloff poster and she has all these like other bits and bobs like how much of that was kind of like coming from your own like personal loves of different media yeah uh, it it, I mean that that definitely comes from my love of media and like my sort of honestly the Boris Karloff poster was used because it was a Columbia movie and it, it it was a killer poster and it was like up in our sound room and I was like we should put that in Katie's room that's awesome because we would like kill ourselves to like design a new poster and I was like that that poster's sick let's put it in a room I think it's like you know Lindsay Olivares was our production designer and me and her were like totally that's like why she was production designer is like she started out as a character designer and just we had the exact same taste and we loved the same stuff and when she was researching when we we me and her both found the same thing when we were researching rooms to try to model Katie's room after where you could not find you can't find a teenager's room if you google image search teenager room because you only see beautiful examples of what your teenager's room could be you have to go to like facebook and look up real teenagers and look at their background and and that was the thing that was so exciting to us in 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 terms of the detail and stuff and that's one thing i love about like the richness of the house in like whisper the heart or something it's like filled with stuff you know just like most of our houses are filled with stuff you know it's like no one would ever um like in michael leader's house in his window there's a bunch of stuff on top of a cabinet no one would design that without really being intentional about it but that makes it look real and you know it's like and if and if my house didn't if this door wasn't open i'm doing a lot of visual stuff on a podcast but um but you know like if if the if that stuff isn't there all of a sudden it feels fake and and i think that that in animation you have an extra burden on yourself to to do that extra work and it is a lot of extra work um to make things feel real because it because it pulls you in and sort of and makes that different that distance between you and the you and the um you and the audience smaller and also i mean again like i was saying with miyazaki things it's like you get to see you don't just see real life you get to see an artist's interpretation of all of those objects. And in those interpretations are opinions. And it that's so much more interesting to look at to me than a photograph. Cause it's like, Oh, um, Lindsay Olivares, our um, production designer thinks, you know, like thinks water bottles are long and oblong and twisty and bendy and bent, you know, and that's like her memory of, of a water bottle. And it's like those memories being turned into drawings 
being turned into like made with love sort of beam out of the screen to the audience in in a way that that nothing else can so th- that's like why we were so um maniacal about that because the 3d people were like this set is only on screen for 10 seconds what are you doing <laughs> and we we're like it's important like that was the first set we did the first set we did was like katie's room in the kitchen which are two of the densest sets and they were always trying to sort of talk us out of like do you really need to have this many pictures on the wall come on and we we're like no <laughs> like we have lots of highways later we'll just shoot the sky leave us alone we're artists uh. um but um but you know, sort of, we 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 were able to do that because you know some of the some of the later stuff in the movie was really simple. Um, so we're like, look, we'll put all of our detail in here, and the rest of the stuff will be simple. And that wasn't on purpose; that was just sort of what the story called for. That really is one of the most powerful things about Whisper of the Heart. You know, so we went to Japan back in 2019, and we went to the suburb that they used um, as a basis for Whisper of the Heart. I mean, it's just a suburb, you know? Yeah, it's just. A- <laughs> It's a sleepy suburb. I know, but I want to go there. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you should go on that pilgrimage. It was um, definitely the nerdiest thing I've ever done. But um, but it's exactly true what you say. It's the animator's take on that, the artist's take on that, infusing it with something. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, as much as I, you know, you, you called out, this is my son's bedroom that's turned into <laughs> my home office in the last sorry, year. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I don't think this will become an iconic shot like the... The, the the shot from Whisper of the Heart that inspired all the lo-fi beats memes, uh, you know, of Shizuku at her desk. So, but that's true. There's something about the reality, but seen through the eyes of the Ghibli animators that just takes it next level. As well as that kind of the comforting clutter of Whisper of the Heart that you can we can see in the the Mitchell home. Like there's there's something of Shizuku in Katie as well. The way that she kind of approaches creativity and storytelling and like that that is like you've got your robot apocalypse sure but you've also got like this kind of this backbone to the story is that journey of katie's creativity and that pursuit of it and something that is true of shizuku and of katie is that they're not they're not masters by the end of the film or anything like that for them like this artistry is something to just keep you you work at it and pursue it and it's about just continually pursuing this passion which is something that I I love about Whisper of the Heart, but something that I really loved about Mitchell's as well. No, oh, thank you. I mean, that's hey, if we're in the same category as Whisper of the Heart and any, uh, you know, anything, I I'm done, you know. Um, but I think I think that's really true, and I think that it, it's now that you're saying it, it isn't. It's it is an interesting difference between a Western and a sort of Eastern aesthetic, because Katie is like I noticed this when I um oddly when I went to Canada. I sort of like don't think because I've been I don't travel abroad that much, you know, I'm like too busy maniacally working on cartoons. But whenever I do, I'm really struck. I'm like, wow, Americans are so loud, <laughs> including me. And I noticed that just sort of as you're talking about it, like that, that Katie and and the main character of Whisper of the Heart are really similar in that they're like very focused and dedicated but they're focused and dedicated in completely different ways. Like Katie's like loud and crazy and passionate and she's got swirls in her eyes. And like the main character of Whisper in the Heart is like, like very inward and, um, you know, so like dedicated, but in a, in a way that like, I think, I think it's just as observed. It's so observed, but also, you know, sort of like Katie is observed from my life and I am a big, loud, 
pain in the ass <laughs> that wants to try a hundred different things and is really excited about using puppets in the same movie as, you know, 2D or whatever. Um, and, and I think both of them come from just sort of like, you know, the, the types of artists that we we observed, you know, when we were growing up. I think it might be that kind of, um, well, another difference between those two characters is like the technology. Like, I don't think I could imagine Miyazaki having Shizuku send somebody a meme of a yeah, dog sure. or something like that. Like- <laughs> he would be disgusted and rightly so. Um, <laughs> no. And I think, I do think it's, it's sort of like, you know, I would love, I would love to see it though. You know, I would love to, because I'm sure that if they did it, it would be perfect. <laughs> you know, if they had to, if somebody held a gun to, you know, Miyazaki's head and said like, make a meme joke, he'd be like, very well (laughs) and he would just it would be perfect and real and he would somehow find the poetry in it um because like that's and 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 that's an interesting thing about those movies too where it's like yeah like i said they're not just they're not just slice of life they're also sort of like very subtly finding meaning in that in that life and and sort of showing it in a very unpushy way which is like so nice and something that we did not do <laughs> like our theme is like you know just short of on a you know on a t- title card worth you know uh katie staring directly at the audience and saying this is the theme of the movie and it's so nice that in a, in in sort of a miyazaki movie or or in any of the movies that the theme is so gently presented um you know there's exceptions like you know princess mononoke which i just watched i was like oh that that one is more direct but in a movie like Kiki or something, it's, you know, it's like that movie is just about being young and trying to find your way in the world. And the it's like very simple. It's like you'll have setbacks, but you'll recover. And that's part of life and part of growing up. And and it's like it's such a gentle sort of message or something. But it's it, it's just as effective as some, you know, some movie like, I don't know, Crash or something. And the, the message is racism is wrong or whatever. Like, you know, you're you're like you're you're so it's it's so much more effective when it allows you to discover it. And that's and that's another thing that's great about those Ghibli movies. It really encourages deep engagement because it's not um, spelling everything out for you. It's making you look closer and it's, you know, making you like look at all the little details and like, oh, look at that little sign up there. And this is rusted and and like, oh, man, I've never really never really looked at a cloud before, but that's what they look like. That's beautiful, you know. Um, and that's another thing that's great about these movies that they, they they're really restrained and they let they let the audience do a lot of the work. And, and one of the things that, you know, we learned in the movie and I'm still trying to learn and trying to get better at is that audiences love doing that stuff audiences love doing the work like a little bit of work they don't want to do a ton of work um but um but if you if you if they're in the hands of like a good storyteller they love to not have things presented bluntly to them and they love to sort of like get in there and figure things out for themselves and that's like all of the movies you know with very few exceptions uh all the studio ghibli movies like allow you that kind of like that time for thought and also time to like engage and look closer and come to your own conclusions and that sort of thing. Mitchell's Wisdom of the Machines now is kind of the the latest great entry into the 
canon of great messy idiosyncratic eccentric families on film and ghibli don't really go for that miyazaki doesn't really go for that but there is one film that takahata made uh, which does have a very idiosyncratic family. I don't know if you've watched it. My name is the Yamadas. So what did you get from that one? It's, a, it's it's kind of almost, we've said on the podcast, like the Eastern, the Japanese version of The Simpsons in a way. But yeah, what, what did you make of that film? I loved it. I mean, I I, I will say it, it was, it's an interesting exercise. I don't think it worked. In t- I mean, you know, this is me talking who I have no business saying anything. But, you know, for me personally, when I was watching it, I was like, I don't know if this works incredibly as a movie i loved each individual part you know and and then i was like i wish these were like shorts that i could just kind of watch whenever i wanted to but the thing that really blew me away and i think the thing that like takahata was always scratching at is just like the is like these this incredible stylish embellishment of having that the thing that really knocked me on my ass about that movie or, you know, whatever <laughs> um, knocked blew me away about that movie is um, is just that how simple the character designs were and how incredibly elaborate some of the shots were and how engaging that was to watch stylistically, where it's like these are the world's simplest characters. It's like four lines. But when you're seeing them fighting on a pirate ship, it's like stunning because you've got like some of the greatest artists in the world and they're like, Oh wait, I don't have to draw nostrils. Oh, this is rad. Okay. Let's go nuts boys. You know, like, and, and they were able to like do the animation in this, in this crazy way. And, and also I, I, I will say I did, I do love that about that movie because I will say a lot of, a lot of Miyazaki's movies, their heroes kind of remind you of him or something where they're like, very straightforward and but they're very passionate about what they believe in and they will do anything to get it in a like methodical sense and the Yamadas are like some of the only characters in those movies that are just like fuck ups (laughs) you know like um like and and I love that I love that about that family and I, I I I really like those as shorts but there was something interesting to me I was like oh this is interesting that as a movie these episodes I just want one of them and I want to move on. But it's like, it's seeing them all together. I was, it was, it was like, I was like, and that's another cool thing about Takahata is he's like Miyazaki. Like it always works. He's always like, you know, he's, he's swinging hard and he always connects and it's always in the strike zone. And Takahata's like, let's get wild here guys. (laughs) And like, and that's, and it's so fun because sometimes he misses and sometimes he hits it out of the park in a way that, I don't think Miyazaki could because he's taking bigger risks. You know, it's like that scene at the end of, you know, it's, it was in all the trailers, but in, in Princess Kaguya, when she's like storming out of her, like, you know, um, whatever she was in that um, it felt like a prison to her, but she was, she had to be a princess and she was like running out. It's like one of the most amazing scenes in film history. And it's, it's because he was allowing himself for, for those huge, allowing himself to make mistakes, but also, taking bigger risks so that is is such a stunning scene and also the baby animation in that movie is like the most adorable thing you'll ever see in your life it's like and it's also done that's another cool thing about him is like he's like oh how can we use animation in new ways where it's like the baby is like drawn soft and sensitively and it that makes the movement feel more delicate 
And then when, but then when she's storming out of the castle, there's like jagged ink lines and stuff, and it's violent and scary, um, but also like liberating and exciting. Like, um, that's what I, I, cause I really love and sort of respect Akahata for taking those chances. And that's like, I feel like a kinship with him in that way because like, I feel like animation is so rich and it's, it's infinite. And people like, especially in the West are like, this is animation. It's this little, I'm, I'm making a small gesture, <laughs> um, you know, or like it's the side, you know, it's like, Oh, it's stupid little movies for kids. You know, sometimes Pixar does them and they're good. But, you know, that's generally what animation is to me, uh, a sort of Westerner. And it's like, you could have a horror movie. You could have the most serious drama in the world. You can use bamboo shoots, you know, as stop motion and make the characters out of that. You can, you know, make a you could use motor oil to to to, to animate like you can do all this stuff. But no one ever no one in, in, in mainstream animation in, in the U.S. anyway ever does it. And we were trying trying to do what we could on our end to push the boundaries of of what was possible in an animated movie and it was nice because we inherited like you know the 95 bulls or whatever like and all of our people were from spider-verse and they had just made this groundbreaking incredible movie and we had big ambitions and they had big ambitions so it was like a cool match so we were trying to push the edges of it but i think that like we pushed like an inch and there's like miles to go and that's that's what I love about sort of Takahata is he's had that vision that like we could do anything with these movies. And I'm so glad that he was able to finish Kaguya because it's such a like incredible accomplishment. And it's a testament to the thing he had been sort of advocating his whole life, which is that you can push these movies stylistically into places you've never seen before. And they can be just as beautiful and just as observed as as the traditional one. I think that the Takahata films as well, they they give a bit more trust to the audience than the Miyazaki ones do. Like Miyazaki is so like so detailed and like those magical worlds can be fantastical, but you always feel kind of safely contained within them. But in Yamada's, you can uh, have just a, a pig walk on, uh, take the screen in the opposite direction, remove all the other characters, have a poem come up, uh, and your your aud- audience still like you still feel safely within that world, even though it's been like in a way ripped to shreds by this moment, and you still go with it. And I mean. I suppose in your way, you might not have like a 15th century poem, but you've got the Rick Mitchell special and uh, like the audio, the freeze frames and there's puppets and there's other animation and you can totally rip up the rule book of your film and your audience still stays with you. It's amazing how much kind of just faith there is there. And why well, it's not like you, you just know that your audience is going to go with you. You don't need to keep them like stuck in this single look. Yeah. Well, and if, if you, if you as a, if you as a storyteller, because you're kind of making a pact with your audience in like the first couple minutes. And the pact is like, I'm going to take care of you and I'm not going to waste your time. Um, and, and I'm not going to put something on the screen that doesn't work. Um, you know, and my definition of work might be different than yours, but I'll try to put something on the screen that you respect. And if you are true to that pact, you can kind of do anything, you know, like, because it's like, you know, we try to do even further more, wild things with Mitchells and some of them just didn't work and we just didn't put them in the movie. And I think that that's one of the things that's sort of like wonderful about honestly, the, the sort of Western process. Cause it's so funny seeing kingdom of dreams of madness where it's like just Miyazaki's just, just start to finish storyboarding it. And then he's done. And I'm like, what, 
what is that? I don't even I don't even begin to understand how a human could do that and how the movies can come out perfect. Because like I come from the you know sort of theory that like look it's collaborative and you figure it out together and you know you're gonna try a million things that fail and then you sort of get better and better and better. But he's like no 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 fuck all that. I'm just gonna make it and it's gonna be perfect. <laughs> um, but um, but it but it um, but it, I will say that it's 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 exciting to. It's exciting to try all that stuff and realize that there isn't a rule book and like watching Takata's movies is like a reminder of that in a really exciting way. Who's like taking somebody who's like at the top of their game and saying like, I'm going to do something completely different that you've never seen before. And and I was like really sort of, you know, kind of gutted that he died. But he, he he's, you know, he he'd lived a long life and he'd made his he'd sort of made his big masterpiece. So I'm, I'm glad he got that out before he before he went. I love that you've seen that you've recently watched King of Dreams and Madness because I think it's a great documentary in its own right, whether you're a nerd about these films or not, about these geniuses with their sort of late masterpieces um, and also just the very specific Ghibli world. You've talked a lot about the sort of things that struck you that were just so outlandish that would never work in a Western production. Was there, was there anything that you learned from that documentary that you think, oh, maybe I'll try that next time I'm making a film? Every, everything. I loved that. I love that. I was like taking notes. I was like, how do I do this? How do I become these people? The coolest thing about that movie, I was like cheering in my in my room. And it's a weird thing to cheer about, but I love that the producer said, let's release Grave of the Fireflies and My Neighbor Totoro on the same day and look, it's gonna business wise, it's a disaster. It makes no sense, but it's gonna make both movies better because these two are competitive, and and they're both gonna make masterpieces. And they did. Like those are two of the best ones. It was, I I, I was I I was like literally applauding um and like cackling at that moment because it's like it's such a triumph of Ghibli in general. And whenever I'm at a company, I'm always sort of you know, waving this flag or whatever. <laughs> I read a lot of emails that don't get read. I'm like, eh, here's should be our mission statement or whatever. But I, I think that Ghibli is such a um, incredible and Disney is too, uh, you know, to, to this right, but especially Ghibli is like this incredible, like example of like, if you do amazing work consistently, you won't have to worry about money. Like, there's so much like I, you know, because I made this movie in sort of the the ringer of a studio system and stuff, and there was a lot of people at Sony who were wonderful and believed in us, and it was incredible. Like in a lot of ways, it was like a fairy tale story, but in other ways, it's like so hard to get something made, and everyone doubts it, and it literally took us like three or four years to get greenlit. But there you know Ghibli's strategy and the strategy that I would try to sort of impart on people and Pixar did the same thing it's like if you make movies of undeniable quality everything else will work itself out like like everyone ties themselves in knots and be like oh my god should we make a Captain Caveman movie I'm losing my mind like don't make a Captain Caveman movie just make a good movie and you'll get all the money in the world like it's so stupid um, and, 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 and I would advise anyone in the animation, uh, you know, field 
um, who is responsible for how what gets funded to watch the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, um, take some notes. Those guys are millionaires, and you know all they did was make um, you know ten of the greatest movies of all time. So um, that's all you need to do. Um, ten, twenty. I don't know how many. How many? How many Ghibli movies are there? 24, 25? 24, Yeah, I think with yeah. A- with Eric and the Witch. Um, yeah, that's twenty. That's now to, up to twenty five. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just make just make you know a bunch of you know twenty plus classics, and you're you'll be financially secure. <laughs> like, um, I'd love to ask you about the actual process of animation because ne- like none of us here, we we're not animators. There's a lot of stuff in Mitchell's that is maybe not in the quote-unquote normal world of cg uh there's there's hand-drawn stuff there's watercolor stuff i'd love to for you to give us a peek behind the curtain of kind of what the what the stuff you were doing that was kind of scaring a lot of your employees i guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> no totally um it's it's really um that, that we really had sort of like this magical situation where you know the the all of the sort of me and um, Lindsay Oliveras, our sort of production designer, and a lot of our artists and Jeff Rowe, my co-director and stuff, like we just had a lot of crazy um, film school student energy. Like, ah, we get to make a movie. Um, so we got really excited and we were like, okay, if we can make a movie, what are we going to do? What would be new and interesting? And and I just had a check mark on the wall that said like, make the movie look visually dazzling in a, in a new way that no one's ever seen before. And I was like, all right, guys. All right, let's check this box next. Um, <laughs> um, so we we were trying to sort of like figure out what would be good for the movie. And because it's a movie about humans, we wanted it to feel like humans made the movie. And kind of like, you know, because there is like, if you've seen any Art of Book, you accept Ghibli, Ghibli, honestly. But if you see an Art of Book for a, for a Western movie, there's all these fantastical worlds and incredible styles and then when it's converted into CG, there's often this like dull, it's, it's like there's a veil put up between the artist that drew it and what you're watching on the screen at the end of the day. It goes through like 10 computers and all of a sudden you're seeing something that, you know, Miyazaki would say is an insult to life itself or whatever. Um, but if you what we were trying to do is sort of like remove the veil and sort of make it seem like an artist really drew every frame because it was something that humans were doing. So it took a lot of willpower and it took a lot of um, artists who had just worked on Spider-Verse and was like thought that it was possible and got really excited about it. So basically what we would do is they were like, give us a painting that's exactly how you want the movie to look like if that was a frame of the movie, you'd be the happiest you've ever been. And we're like, okay. And we made a painting that was like done with kind of like watercolor style and it had outlines and it was as human as we could make it. And then they broke it down and they're like, okay, how do we replicate this in CG? And they're geniuses. Um, And like Mike Lasker is our head of um, VFX. And he sort of figured all this stuff out. He's like, okay, look, well, there's a lot of watercolor texture so how can we get watercolors in the shadows? So if you look really closely at, you know, the frames in the movies, in the shadows, there's this, like, watercolor texture that moves with the characters. That it's like, I can only explain by showing you a video. And it's kind of incredible, but it's like, it's like as the light passes over them, like, watercolor brush textures pass over them. So that was, like, how he got, you know, how sort of, like, we got it to look a little bit more hand painted. They use like this, this sort of AI tool 
And it's like ironic that it takes an a we like taught a computer to draw like a person. Um, but like to do all of the um, outlines and sort of. But we had to by hand color those outlines and make sure that they were like. Because if you just do black outlines, it looks like a crappy video game. Um, like suddenly you're like, oh, the illusion is broken. This looks terrible. Um, so we had to make the outlines of the characters the same, like a little, a, like one shade off the color of their skin. So there were still outlines. So it still looked like a drawing, but it also looked like those outlines were um, reacting to light. And they also did this crazy thing with trees where it's like with like a, a computer. If a computer is making a lawn or a tree, it does every blade of grass and it looks crazy. It's like why like Shrek looks insane when you look back at it. You're like, why can you see every pore on his face? I'm going to kill myself. This looks insane. Um, uh, and like, you know, at the time it was like amazing. But uh, but, you know, it's sort of you look at it now and it's like, that's a lot. So one of the things we were trying to do is like, OK, how do you kill all that detail? And they would take the, all these green things and they would just like smash it. So all of a sudden it was just kind of a green watercolor swath. Um, you know, so that's like some of the stuff we were doing to try to make it try to make it look different look like it was made by a person um those are like very specific technical examples that would be benefited if you could see visuals that's so interesting it's kind of like going from something like the incredibles where i remember the first time i saw that and seeing like oh my god the water looks so real going from that kind of trying to get it to look as real as possible to then kind of go like return to it looking more kind of animated or hand-drawn it's it's really interesting that it's kind of going that way. It's like the revival of the Furby, like yeah. <laughs> circular. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think it is like a bell curve because, you know, it's because at first you're like, whoa, these characters look weird. They need to look more real. And then obviously, you know, there's like the Uncanny Valley where it looks and start things start looking insane. But I am really excited, um, you know, and I think our hopefully our movie is part of this and Spider-Verse is part of this where it's like, and it's something that animators have been talking about at lunch for 10 years. Like how do we get CG animation looking more like drawings and looking more handmade and looking more interesting because, you know, I work like, like I I've seen a couple animated movies that came out before our movie and they look gorgeous, but the general public, when they sees it, see it, they're like, Oh yeah, that's just what those look like. Yeah. And it's like, you have to sort of like show them something new to make them like, like, oh, yeah, these are incredibly hard to do. And, 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 and you know, there's a lot of artistry that goes into them. Um, so that that was like one of our ideas in terms of like trying to make it look new. And, and, and also just like both from an artistic standpoint and also from a, you know, we, we had to sell it to the studio. Be like, this is also a competitive advantage because your movie doesn't look like every other animated movie. It sticks out from the crowd, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like luckily Sony sort of was in the was like oh yeah that sounds great um whereas i think a lot of studios would have been like shut up <laughs> make it look like everything else well, that's what's um exciting about this film and spider-verse well your film and spider-verse is that it's doing something different to um what we expect from mainstream animation in america you talk about the bell curve it'd be really fascinating to hear from you when you do get around to watching ponyo because that's a film where before miyazaki started on that he said after Howl's Moving Castle spirited away, some CG had started creeping in to the process. He said, we're going to hand draw this entire film. 
So he completely rejected it all. He didn't want to go back to bit basics. He went to like um, the National Gallery in, in London and saw some, you know, paintings and was like, whoa, we need to get back to the actual art. I love um, that. No, no crutches here. And that sort of fed into Wind Rises, which has a similar vibe. So both him and Takata had the same almost idea at the same time, which is try and, you know, capture the hand-drawn line on screen again. We've only got a, a bit more time. And so we've actually been asking all of our guests from the world of animation and beyond uh, the same question, because we have at this point, we've covered every Studio Ghibli film uh, in detail and we've been on other adventures. We watched all of Satoshi Kon's work. We watched all of Cartoon Saloon's work. Uh, and so we're looking for our next project. So where would you where would you send us next? I mean, look, I, 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 I love Warner Brothers cartoons, so check out those, man. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's like certain eras of um, Warner Brothers cartoons that I think are really stunning. I also think um, a, another uh, famous brother, uh, but the I also there's like a era of Fleischer Brothers cartoons um, sort of from the 30s, I guess, like kind of the sort of like Bimbo's initiation um kind of era uh which might have even been the 20s i'm not sure um are are incredible sort of artifacts that also um are insanely entertaining to this day and sort of like show you just how much you can get across with just pure motion um um yeah oh oh and and here's one i mean this one is um is i also like flcl is maybe my favorite thing that was ever made um so maybe do that and also uh uh my uh uh the aizuken keep your hands off aizuken is like um it's that really feels like a sort of successor to some of the ghibli stuff in terms of like how much joy it takes in the creative process and how how it sort of like accurately depicts that and like there's a whole episode that's just about how do you animate a windmill and somehow they made it compelling, which is like ridiculous. Um, that should be the most boring episode of TV in existence. But instead, you're like, oh, my God, they're doing it. Oh, these sweet girls are finally animating a windmill. Um, but uh, uh, so the, I, the, those are those are some some ideas off the top of my head. Mike, have you spoken to Enrico Casarossa at all? No, we've never talked. I used to love his comics and I and I love his movie. Because, yeah, we spoke to him two days ago and he said exactly the same thing. <laughs> Oh really? That's cool. He, he, he loves he loves Isaacen, yeah. Of course. I mean, we're we're animators. We're like, it's a celebration of animation, but it really is. I mean, I think it. I think the cool thing is that you can't capture like people just think I'm a dork or something, <laughs> or like you know. But but I think if you watch that show, it will make you understand what how someone could fall in love with animation and why someone like Miyazaki or Takahata. Uh, or uh, it, morons like me um, would sort of dedicate their lives to this art form because it's so exciting. Um, and it sort of conveys that excitement in a way that like, I don't think words ever could. So many recommendations there, Mike. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, thank you for talking with us and geeking out about Ghibli. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, it's it's It was a treat and um, I could I could talk about it for 10 hours, but um, I'm, I'm glad... It's over um, uh, because I can go back and watch more movies. (laughs) 
Thank you so much to Mike Rianda for joining us today. We should say we recorded that episode at five o'clock on a Friday at the end of the working week for us in the UK, the start of a Friday for Mike. And it was just such an amazing rush of energy to get us through into the weekend. Such a fun chat. Thank you so much, Mike. Definitely watch Mitchell's vs. the Machines on Netflix if you haven't already. Yeah, and if you want to pre-order our book, you can do that uh, in all good booksellers. We've also got uh, free international shipping for any of our international listeners. So if you uh, check out our Twitter, you can see links to where you can get that shipping sorted for you as well. Uh, And we're going to have another chat returns out for you next week too. In the meantime, you can keep up with the podcast on Twitter at Ghibliatech or send us an email ghibli at little.studios.com. You can also follow Jake on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. You can follow Steph at underscore Steph Watts. And you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe, our music is by Anthony Ying, and James Payne is our editor. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.